Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Katie Balls. But Fraser, we're not joined by James today and I don't think we will be joined by James for a while now. Can you tell us what's happened? Well, it turns out that Santa has entered the abduction business. He's stolen James Forsyth. He's put him down the chimney of number 10 and into Sinex stocking, where it emerges James Forsyth is going to be the new political secretary to the prime minister. No longer here with us in The Spectators. After 16 years of the magazine, 14 of them as political editor, James is now off to a political sojourn. It's an end of an era for this podcast, clearly. And I mean, I don't think it will come as a great surprise to listeners that James Forsyth has known Rishi Sunak for many years, given we've had many comments and emails in saying he no longer needs to tell us we have we have got the message. <laughs> but of course, we will try to keep this podcast as insightful as we can, though um, uphill about James Forsyth there. I also think it's interesting in terms of, I suppose, what it shows about what Rishi Sunak is trying to do going into the new year, which is the subject of this podcast, Cindy, in the sense that when he first arrived, that message to MPs privately was unite or die, obviously a message that was leaked within a minute because it was to a room full of MPs, but they placed such importance on party unity and therefore it was just an, another person in terms of that team, which was already quite bucked up of working out how you can keep this coalition of MPs together and what exactly you can get them to say yes to. Of course, we should say, James isn't the first spectator political editor to work for a Tory leader. Patrick Cosgrave, a fantastic political editor, uh, made sure the Spectator was the only magazine, the only publication in Britain to back Thatcher on the first leadership ballot. He liked her so much he went off to work for her, but um, didn't quite give up his habit for long lunches. And um, the, the story goes that she eventually fired him when he threw up on her shoes in a taxi once. Now, I feel confident that James will not succumb to the same temptations uh, when he's inside number 10, although I might be tempted to go for a few long lunches after looking at Rishi Sunak's entry. But under James's guidance, um, maybe he'll make a better fist of it, starting with the strikes, perhaps. I mean, I've recently looked into the, um, the nurses' package, and, and I've got a great deal of sympathy for the nurses. I've always felt it's they're the classic example of the truism that the social import of a job and the economic reward are never tend to be matched. Um, so Goldman Sachs bankers like Rishi Sunak will get all sorts of rewards, where people who save lives on a daily basis of nursing tend not to. But then again, I looked at the overall package for nurses. This is what, as an employer, you, you've got to do. I, I do this myself with a spectator accounts. You've got to work out, you know, not just the, 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 the salary, but then there's the tax which you pay to the government on behalf of the salary. Then you've got the pension, you've got other benefits. Now, nurses get a third of their package through as pension. That's a pretty big amount. But when you add it all up, it's about £50,000 a year. Now, I don't say this is too much. I think nurses deserve every penny. But when you're trying to negotiate and make arguments over public sector salaries, I do think you need to factor in um, the whole picture. The whole picture here is that there are um, such things as rather more generous public sector pensions um, and the nurses, for example, can start to claim theirs at the age of 55. It can be a phased retirement. It's one of the best paid and most generous pension schemes 
in the country. For every £1 you put in, you get between £3 and £6 of benefits in general. Now, again, I'm not saying this is too generous. I'm just saying this is part of the picture. I would prefer a system where nurses were able to decide themselves if they would take more as salary and perhaps less as pension. Most people from other companies can do that. But if the NHS is one massive state-run behemoth, then it becomes harder to tailor remuneration packages that best suit the employees. So I think flexibility is part of this. And if the government is going to be talking about paying conditions, it should try to make it, uh, it should try to talk about the whole trade-offs. As Mark Drayford, for example, has been doing in Wales, he's been saying, that, yeah, we can give them more money, but that means fewer operations or fewer nurses. That is the simple truth of it. And if I were Rishi Sunak, I'd start to speak this simple truth. And Katie, what about the other domestic problems that the government have to think about over the next year? I mean, this year we already saw rebellions on wind power and on housing reform. Yeah, so I think, as Fraser just touched on, strikes are what's going to be dominating probably all the way through March, unless something does come up or some resolution can be found. And in a way, it affects everything that Rishi Sunak is going to do in terms of other domestic reforms, uh, other pledges, other promises, because... He, he is in a position lots of leaders find themselves in, whereby if he does give in or look to give in, um, as some MPs in his party would see it, in a drastic way on some of this pay, I think that would then be seen as a weakness by not just uh, those unions which would still be pushing for pay for, for their sector, but also by Tory MPs as more evidence this is a prime minister they can push around um, in, this, in this coalition. But of course, if you don't do it and then you have mass disruption, does the government actually get blamed in terms of public opinion and find themselves in a tricky position. Um, so that would be a big theme going into the new year. Then I think what we're going to see is in terms of some strike legislation. So this is about minimum service. Um, that's something which I don't think you should get a Tory rebellion on particularly, because I think it's actually something that most can agree on, which we know is what Rishi is trying to do with all his plans, but which could, of course, have negative publicity around or a backlash outside of the Commons and Labour, it could be difficult for Labour, but I think politically part of the reason Rishi Sunak has been trying to win this reasonableness argument on strikes is because he knows this legislation could be controversial, not with his own side, but in other ways. Then I think going into the new year, you're going to have Rwanda. So we saw the beginnings of that um, at the end of this year, but ultimately Rishi Sunak needs to show some progress. Now it's notable on the liaison committee other parts, he won't put any figures on it um, in terms of when these flights might go. But if you speak to anyone in 10 Downing Street, I think they do see this as the issue by which if you cannot show that the government is getting any grip on the issue of small votes, and even if they've got a small grip, I don't think it'd be enough for some voters who say, well, you've had a lot of time to deal with it. They see that as pretty existential. That, that is a huge problem. And then I think we're going to see Rishi Sunak trying to set out his vision because already you have MPs quite impatient. You have the first phase almost of Rishi Sunak's premiership is complete. And that was coming in and firefighting, stabilising the economy to, to the degree that no one is talking about, you know, guilt yields every day, um, as they were during the Liz Truss era but that has been banked and now you speak to MPs and they will say well this managerial style is all fine but that's not going to win us an election and instead we they feel as though you speak to certain MPs they definitely feel as though they're in a loop where they've 
steadied some of their losses, but this is not a trajectory to victory. Mm. So I think one of Rishi Sunak's biggest challenges for the new year, not not to sound corny, but is to actually give some hope um, because there is actually a really big problem in terms of parliamentary management and which affects anything you want to do in terms of legislation and elsewhere if MPs are just resigned to defeat at the next election. And you saw that with some MPs stepping down. Now, we didn't have nearly as many MPs saying they're not going to stand in the next election as some of the predictions were that you saw. And I think that was part because sometimes you get, you know, certain MPs want to tell you everything is doomed and that can travel a bit better. But it was also because actually figures in government got so worried that there was going to be, there were going to be such a high number stepping down that this deadline, which was all about the Boundary Commission, they started saying, it's not a real deadline, you know, don't tell us right now, you, you don't have to tell us by the deadline. Those conversations were going on in private, I understand, I've had MPs say that they had them. Um, so we could well see more MPs decide that they're not going to stand in the next election. And therefore, I think Rishi Sunak needs to you can chip away at that poll lead with Labour, but effectively, in terms of his party, in terms of actually pushing things through, he needs to somehow find a way to tell his party everything is not lost and also to chip at Labour because right now Labour looks so confident and that's what's freaking out the Tories. They haven't seen that for years. And if you, you could almost plan a little bit of doubt into Keir Starmer and his shadow cabinet about whether they do the right direction, talking in the right things, um, I think uh, Tory MPs will start to feel a lot more competitive and immigration is one of the areas where I think if they could just get a bit front-footed, they think you could actually attack your stomach if you were in a stronger position, which they haven't been for a while. Mm -hmm. To set out some kind of positive vision to work towards. Fraser, what about the foreign then? Because this is a prime minister who has come up um, through to Downing Street without dealing much with foreign policy. And I think that sometimes shows that he's not um, his focus is much more on domestic economic issues. But next year, do we A, think that the Ukraine war is going to be finished either way? And also B, what is the British government going to be doing on all various, various foreign policy aims um, when it comes to fighting authoritarian states abroad, all this sort of stuff? Well, Rishi Sunak is certainly exposed here. He is accused of being a kind of bloodless Goldman Sachs financier who's got zero opinions about the outside world and sees everything through a relatively mercantilist um, worldview. I think there is um, there is consternation about um, his um, doing a review of the aid sent to Ukraine. Uh, I imagine he wanted to make sure that, you know, simply the fact that it was a good cause didn't mean to say you were wasting money, but the money was being spent in the most effective way possible. Uh, his critics thought, ah, oh, here we go, penny-pinching straight away. He, he thinks that he can cut back on that. I could be wrong, but I don't think that he will shirk in making Britain um, stay, remains Ukraine's number one ally after the United States, number one ally in Europe, and the relationship between the British military and the Ukrainian military is probably the strongest um, that, 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 um, that there is in the continent. So I think that's going to stay. I actually think that on China, he's a lot more hawkish than other people. And I think the debate is going to come round his way. I think people are becoming less worried about China for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that zero COVID has so obviously um, put the country into crisis. But also, if you look at its changing demographics, <clears throat> the new revisions on the working age population going down so much, it simply doesn't look as if China's ever going to overtake America as the world's num number one economic power. In fact, it looks like a, a country which will be on the wane 
um, and therefore to be feared a bit less. Now, that doesn't mean to say that um, the various um, fears are not well-founded. And you can argue, as James did in his, um, in his many years here at The Spectator, that a retreating power is if anything, more dangerous than an expanding one, because Xi might think, OK, I've got a relatively small window where I can invade Taiwan, uh, because I won't be able to do it in a couple of decades' time, because China will simply have a worse military comparable to our rivals. But I suspect that things will be calming there. I also think in, in AUKUS, then you've got a proper kind of um, Asian-Australian uh, defence apparatus that will only be joined. I think the big opportunity for him will be the Swedish presidency of the European Union, which starts um, in January. Now, this is helpful because Sweden really is a major British ally. And one of the priorities of the Swedish premiership is to improve relations between the UK and the EU. Now, a lot of this has gone unnoticed, um, but I think Sweden really missed Britain when we left because we were the ones usually siding with Sweden in all the great free trade discussions. And I think they think that Europe would be better and the EU would be better with more British influence in there. So I think that that could be a great opportunity, if Sunak's got the wit to take it, for um, a rapprochement. I mean, Britain, uh, under Theresa May, said it wanted to be the EU's biggest single ally. That was the completely right objective and something we've rather lost sight of. I think the Swedish presidency will give us the chance to revisit that priority and to start to and advertise and cement and strengthen the links um, between Britain and the EU and Britain's status, undeniably, as the EU's greatest external ally. And Katie, actually, back in the UK, we realised that we have more <laughs> things to talk about in the in-tray as well. I mean, one of those is the union, the future of the union. As we record, there's a row brewing over these Gender Recognition Act um, that has been passed in Scotland. Tell us about what is the tension here? So we've already had one court battle when it comes to the Scottish government and the UK government, and that was on whether Nicola Sturgeon had the power to call, and the Scottish Parliament had a power to call an independence referendum. The ruling was no. That has actually, um, while you've seen some polling suggesting independence has risen since that, I think it has caused lots of problems to the SNP in terms of internal divisions. And now it looks as though we could, but we're not quite there yet, but gearing up for another court battle um, between the two sides. And this is on gender self-ID. So the Scottish Parliament have uh, passed its gender recognition bill this week by 86 votes to 39. So they're the first part of the UK to greenlight a process of self-identification for legally changing gender. Now, we know that the UK government harbours concern about this. Kami Badenoch, um, Equalities Minister particularly, has, has made that pretty clear. She visited um, her counterpart in Scotland before this vote um, to, to say they should think carefully. And on that, the bill being voted through, you had Alistair Jack, the Secretary of State for Scotland, issuing a statement which is pretty punchy in which he said that the government shares the concern of critics of the bill about uh, you know regarding safety for women and children and said that um, in the coming 28 days which is standard after a piece of legislation in the uh, Scottish Parliament passes in these 28 days they will be looking at it to see what needs to be done and how it fits with uh, reserve matters and 
he says this could, in the coming weeks, they will look at how the ramifications for the 2010 Equality Act, other UK wide legislation, um, up to and including a Section 35 order stopping the bill going for royal assent if necessary. Now, this would be pretty radical and drastic, um, but a Section 35 order would be whereby Alistair Jack would use his power as, Scot- as Scotland Secretary to step in and ultimately pause it, stop it going through on the grounds that it would, it could. Um, um, adversely affect the operation of reserve matters, for example, the Equalities Act. And um, if that happens, and you have the UK government saying, no, Scottish Parliament, you cannot pass this through, we're stepping in, you can expect that it could actually uh, end up in a legal case whereby the Scottish government tries to take the UK government to court. And how does that play out in terms of unionism and independence? I think it would play into that debate. And, and uh, you could imagine the SNP starting to say, well, not only are you not letting us have a referendum, you're also stopping us from um, you know, passing domestic legislation. I think that would be a very big mistake for the British government. It should not be in the business of vetoing Scottish Parliament legislation, even if it disagrees with it, for two reasons. One, I think, is, is the basic principle. I mean, devolution's there, so the, the SNP should be able to make its own mistakes. I mean, let's remember if a Scottish public opposes this by a margin of about two to one. There were huge protests while this was going through, protests on the in the, um, in the public gallery of the Scottish Parliament, um, protests up and down the country over this. But also, I think this would just simply play into Nicola Sturgeon's hands. And the SNP, people keep forgetting, its main objective is not the smooth running of Scotland. Its main objective is the breakup of the United Kingdom. It seeks fights. It makes provocations. It is looking for reactions. And usually the best tactic is not to give Nicola Sturgeon that reaction. So um, I know that Alistair Jack does have these powers, and uh, but I don't think they should be used. I think it would be undemocratic, and also I think it would be counterproductive from a unionist point of view. But Fraser, just on that, what about the concerns from the English side that this could lead to some kind of gender tourism where people could go to Scotland and benefit from the self-ID laws, come back uh, having ID'd as another gender, or Scottish people having different treatment in single-sex services in England uh, because there's no, you know, there's not such a border between England and Scotland? Oh, yeah, it certainly would bring the potential for friction. I think Kemi Badenach has also pointed that out. I mean, she understands the situation very well. She's married to a Scot. She's well across Scottish politics. But she, I think that um, I think that's a price worth paying, really. I mean, there are going to now and again you are going to get these things. I mean, um, right now, sixteen-year-olds can go up to Scotland to get married if they want. They can't do it in England, and so they might be able to go over to Gretna Green to get a gender ID. Certificates. I mean, it's possible. Um, I don't think it's very likely. We need to remember right now that something like 93% of gender ID change requests are approved. Only 7% are turned down. And sure, in future, you, you won't need anybody's approval. You'll be able to get a complete certificate. This does raise questions, of course, as to why the 7% were turned down. Were the medical concerns about the people seeking these things? And is it wise, really, to take away that medical duty of care. That's a conversation which GPs and others are having around Nicola Sturgeon's bill. But yes, I do think there will be frictions. Um, I think Kemi Badenich is quite right to flag these frictions, these frictions. But I don't think they're enough to warrant the overturning of Holyrood legislation by Westminster. Very interesting. Um, So there's a lot for James and Rishi to be getting on with in the new year. Um, We wish him all the best of luck um, (laughs) and hope to see 
hope that you're still be listening to the podcast. <laughs> He'll be a listener from now on. James Forsyth will be thinking, oh, that's what I should have said. That's what I should have told Rishi. Dare he ever leave his job, he can actually come on as a, you know, a former advisor pundit. Um, we could give him a cameo appearance, I suppose. I can see a pundit slot for him, actually. After all, the general election isn't that long away. He'll be looking for job opportunities. Fraser and Katie, thanks very much. Um, and best of luck to James in his new path.